0: Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Saturday Nights, all right for podcasting. I'm your host, George Matlock, and as ever, we're presenting this to you on a chrome-plated tray. can't believe it's been a month since we last did this, but yes, indeed, every month on a Saturday night, we are here with this podcast on Radio Elton John. Now, our guest today is somebody, we're going really back into the uh, the mists of time here, really, Uh, somebody who's been with Elton way way back a man who uh, I'm pleased to tell you it is a man indeed who was there during the rock years the earlier years of Elton John's career he features rather huge on Rock of the Westies album 1975 and on Blue Moods 1976 he's a guitarist are we getting any warmer do you have any idea who we're talking about here I hope you do because he's one of these voices I've always wanted to have on the show and I'm delighted that it's been possible to bring him on. And uh, here he is. I'm just going to introduce him to you now. His name is Kenny Passarelli. Welcome, welcome. It's lovely to have you on board. How are you, Kenny?
1: George, I'm well, thank you. And uh, thank you for having me on board.
0: Well, it's an absolute pleasure. Now you're out in um, what we call Carrington Country, aren't you? You're out in Denver. I'm in Denver, Colorado,
1: and uh, I'm, um, I'm. I just got back from Nashville. Mm-hmm. I was uh, uh, inducting a James William Gershow into the Music Hall of Fame, Musicians Hall of Fame, and as you know, uh, Elton John did uh, did three three albums and and had five number one hits out of Caribou Ranch. So I'm fresh from Nashville, uh, uh, and Elton John was very much um, uh, spoken about, and um, Caribou was very much a part of of Elton's career, and I'm I'm happy to say that I did one record, Rock of the Westies, at Caribou with, with.
0: Alton John. Yeah, fantastic. And um, well, we are talking a little bit more about that later. Um, but first up, uh, just so that everybody knows, this is uh, being put out on the uh, on the Saturday, which is the, the 26th. Uh, we actually recorded this um, on Thanksgiving. So, first of all, to all fellow Americans out there, you know, a very happy and joyous and peaceful, I hope, Thanksgiving. Uh, is it something that you celebrate in a big way yourself, Kenny?
1: Well. You know, it, it's such a tradition here in the United States mm. that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to two dinners today. I'm going to take advantage of this <laughs> from a cuisine point of view here. I'm, of course. Yes, I participate in it. And it's something that as a child, it's, we uh, all look forward to Turkey Day, mm. as it were.
0: <laughs> so you actually get two Christmases every year. You're lucky so-and-so because you get Christmas as well, right? It's still a big deal when it comes to the 25th of December.
1: Absolutely. It is unless you're Jewish, you know, you've got Hanukkah, but no, tra- it, it's very much a, tra- a tradition. It's a great time. And again, I've been in England. I know how, how important Boxing Day is, too.
0: Mm, absolutely. So let's um, go back to, to the start. So first of all, I want to ask a little bit about you just to uh, warm you up really to to the uh, audience. So first of all, where where were you born? I was born in Denver, Colorado, October 28th, 1949. Wow,
1: and uh, I uh, I was a I, I was a classical trumpet player as a child. I started at seven, yeah. and I studied uh, full on nine years. Uh, I was heading towards Juilliard, and but Bach and uh, and Haydn just didn't seem to go so well when the Beatles came out, <laughs> and nobody wanted to play the bass guitar. And i I picked up the the bass,
0: playing a trumpet, whether you might have been persuaded to go into jazz. Um, and I don't know if that's something you've entertained over the years. So um,
1: as a, a trumpet player, I could not uh, it was I was like one of those classical players that couldn't improvise. I could read Bach and Haydn, but I couldn't swing on the trumpet. so, but I was aware of jazz, and I love jazz. The trumpet wasn't going to be my vehicle. And when Tommy Bolin, uh, be, before Tommy called me about Joe Walsh, Tommy and I had played in New York and we were kind of doing uh, progressive jazz at that point. I, so on the bass, I I was able to to, to accomplish that.
0: Fantastic. So, uh,
1: but I'm... So I went to to New York with Tommy, and we uh, opened for Tony Williams' lifetime at the Cafe at Gogo. And then I headed to Vancouver. Tommy went back to Boulder. Joe Walsh moved to Boulder, Colorado, and Tommy said he's looking for a bass player. And to be honest with you, because I was it's interesting you should ask this because I was interested in jazz as a bass player when Tommy said, Joe Walsh Funk 49 I said well you know that doesn't necessarily appeal to me and he says no you must take the call so this is the the most important telephone call when Joe called me he said hey man you got to come to Denver so uh to Boulder so I did and uh, that was the beginning of my career and then um Joe was next uh when I When Joe disbanded Barnstorm, I ended up working with Stephen Stills after, you know, a few years after I first met him. And I worked with Stephen on solo projects, wrote with Stephen, played with Manassas. And then I got the call from Joe saying, I've run into Elton John in Vegas. And this is 1975. And he said, uh, he, I recommended you, uh, he's looking for a bass player. He's disbanding his uh, his band, and I was shocked. I said, what? D and Nigel? And he says, mm-hmm. yeah, he wants to do something different. And so I was quite surprised, and I took the call from Elton's manager. Connie called me and said, this is what the thing is. Uh, the gig is a rehearsal in Amsterdam in May, and then the first gig is Wembley Stadium. Wow. And, uh, uh And so that's uh, in June. Uh, I think, and that was that's how it started. But wow. the fretless bass that Joe Walsh had had given me and said, "You got to learn this." Was one of the reasons why Elton loved my work. And Elton, being the type of person who listens to everything, mm. and back then it was that you know the. Everybody knows the story of him going to Tower Records with a shopping cart. And when the new really? release dates were there, he would pick up every single album that was out there and he'd look at all the lighter notes, listen to listen to everything. And he heard my playing on the Joe Walsh records, Barnstorm, and uh, the Smokey You Drink record. And then he also heard me play on Rick Derringer's record uh, and uh, the Dan Fogelberg record. Uh, which is very prominent in the uh, the fretless bass. Part of the plan was a big hit for for Dan, so he was quite aware of of my work, and I I give credit to Joe Walsh for insisting I learn how to play the fretless bass, and uh, so that's uh, that's that's really the story of my first connection with Elton.
0: Fantastic. So, in fact, Joe, as you say, was kind of the 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 light that led you to, to to work with Elton. And you were there for, what, two years, right? You worked with El- Elton, John?
1: Yes, I did 83 concerts. And starting with uh, the very first concert was Wembley Stadium. And then the last concerts were, uh, well, 75 it was Dodger Stadium, two nights at Dodger Stadium. Mm. And then in 1976, we played... Uh, We played seven nights at at Madison Square Gardens, August. It was uh, Louder Than Concord, the Bicentennial Tour, and that was uh, really promoting the uh, um, uh, Blue Moves album
0: absolutely fantastic and i'm so pleased because i was that was going to be a question i was going to throw in but you you beat me to it about um dodger stadium so you were there in 75 and 76 which were those critical years when some you know elton was about to retire we knew, we know in 77 he made a mini retirement but little did we know in 75 and 76 that, that was going to happen he was he was really building up to a climax wasn't he and um and musically uh, you know bringing you in as he did uh, you were there for some of the most amazing gigs and of course how timely that we should talk to you this very week as you know just a few days ago rewind four days ago and elton was back at dodger stadium in los angeles to do a trio of gigs and uh, i was going to ask you were you in the crowd
1: unfortunately i i was not in the crowd but i will tell you October 26th, I think, 25th and 26th of 1975. I would say, from all the concerts I've played with all the artists I've played with, that those were those two nights, two afternoons, I should say, and evenings, were the two best concerts I think I've ever played in my life. The band was perfect. Elton was perfect there was not it was and the crowd was amazing and uh that's the uh, I mean Terry O'Neill did a beautiful book mm. on uh, the two days that rocked <coughs> excuse me that rocked the world and I was fortunate to be on that stage and Elton was of all the 83 concerts we did the man was flawless he never missed a note he never missed a lyric there's no teleprompter back then. Mm, good point. He was he was it was incredible, and uh, I'm I'm very very honored, and uh, uh, that that I I graced the stage with him, and I recorded two uh, two albums with Elton.
0: Well, that was certainly rock history. That uh, uh, those those two concerts that you mentioned in in Dodger Stadium in '75. Um, you, you said everybody was in a really good mood. It all clicked. It all came together. Um, how much? How much rehearsing did it require to get it to that to that level?
1: Well, we had uh, uh, rehearsed for I think it was about two weeks when we uh, not even two weeks, one week up at Caribou. <coughs> excuse me, recording uh, the Rock of the Westies. Mm. So. Uh, then we went out on the road. So we did uh, a series of concerts before we did Dodger Stadium. We actually did a, a private concert at the Troubadour for the Jules Stein. It was Elton John Week in Los Angeles. So we were quite rehearsed, not necessarily in a rehearsal studio, but actually playing on the road. Mm. So uh, we were, we, we. It was. Uh, it wasn't like we'd been out for a couple months. We, we were made. I think we were only out for a couple weeks, and then it was Dodger Stadium time, and uh, we were, we were all, all cylinders were were on. It was an incredible. I mean, Ray Cooper, James Newton Howard, James Newton Howard, who was to know later would be, been nominated for ten Oscars as a film composer. So mm-hmm. the only two Americans on that stage were James Newton Howard and. And uh, Kenny Passarelli, and then you had Davy Johnston, who had been with Elton, and was very much my mentor at the time. Uh, we went to France together before we rehearsed in Amsterdam for the Wembley concert, and Davy taught me the majority of the songs. And um, and then the uh, the incredible Caleb Quay, who's still a very good friend of mine, mm. and. The most unbelievable drummer I ever worked with, Roger Pope. Roger Pope Bless and him. I, we we never even had to look at each other. He was the most solid, incredible, funky uh, d- a drummer, uh, we just communicated. Later, we worked together with Hall and Oates, but Roger was phenomenal. And as a bass player, what do you need? You need a great drummer, and as uh, Roger Pope. God bless him, was one of the greatest drummers ever, I feel. But yeah, I, I've worked with a lot of drum. I've worked with the best.
0: You know, I think that's a fair comment. I, I've had the pleasure of knowing Roger Pope as well for, for a number of years. And we actually gigged together, would you believe? Because I play keyboards in uh, wow. in my spare time. And we went to the Cavern Club, this was back in 2001. And uh, I'd managed to get the band Blue Sology, you know, Elton's original outfit from the 60s together. And uh, there was a big fan convention, and we piled all the the fans in. So, of course, every one of them with a critical ear. So it was no no pressure, you know, no pressure. And so everybody's in 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 the in the in the cavern club in Liverpool. And um, and uh, what we had was we had Mick Inkpen, who's the 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 uh, the bluesology drummer, and he was there for most of the set. But we also had Roger Pope go up and do one or two maybe. Uh, uh, of the songs that we did on that stage, and it was the most amazing thing. So, uh, I mean, I'm not a pro. I'm certainly not uh, not qualified to be up there, uh, you know, in the Elton John band or anything like that. But I, but I can certainly say, you know, something for the grandkids to know. I can say I uh, proudly that I've been on stage with, with Roger Pope, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. And I'm so grateful to him. And as I know you are, I mean, he is he was indeed a fantastic drummer. I think that's very true. So much missed, much missed absolutely so, um, so that, yeah uh, go ahead no please it sounds like you're you're un, you're unfolding your story i'll let you carry on
1: well so 75 rock of the westies didn't get the greatest reviews i think people hmm. uh there were i, I you know I, it wasn't like there was emails and stuff but i got a lot of bad sort of people were upset that i replaced d um and uh i saw d in london and i i felt bad and i think it took a while for nigel to kind of take a liking to me uh, <clears throat> i wasn't the one who disbanded the group and i'll be quite honest with you i was more of americana music guy i was into i've been working with Stephen stills and mm. uh i was into the the csn thing and And yes, I was a fan of Elton's, but I I wasn't this diehard person. So when I got the call, and I'd already been around the block a few times, I played Carnegie Hall with Stephen Stills. I did big gigs with Joe Walsh and Manassas and with Stephen. So uh, I wasn't one of those those, uh, um, Elton John uh, fanatics. And when I got the call, I was quite shocked by it and uh, didn't ever realized that he would ever, that Dean Nigel would leave. So it took a while for people to accept me. And I think some of the fans and, uh, but I got to tell you, it was a perfect fit. Elton was incredible. He, he, uh, when, when I did basic tracks with Elton John, I stood on the left, the, the left, you know, the base, the, his left left hand where where i could watch him play the bass uh notes and i memorized what he was doing and then i did kenny passarelli and he never said to me i don't like that don't do something else that isn't right so elton let me be myself mm. and uh all those records i play on there wasn't really any sort of was uh there was there was no confusion about well i don't think that's the right thing to do and and i'll always remember him as being the ultimate composer in the sense of of allowing his players to do what they needed to do uh to to enhance his music he had a vision and i was fortunate to be part of that picture
0: I mean, it's incredible what you're saying there. Because um, uh, first of all, I, I, I can understand the the kind of backlash or the the criticism that you must have faced from the fans, because they they never like change, when, particularly when they're they're really enjoying what the, what they're getting. Right. So it's always very very difficult. It, it, and it, and it's a big challenge for an artist like you coming in. I mean, as you said, it's not like you were elbowing people out of the way to get in there. You 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 got the you got the call. You got the call to come. Um, and and the fans obviously always think, well, must, something must have happened behind the scenes to make this, you know, that they've dropped D and, and, and so on. And, and, of course, as you say, that wasn't the case, and, and you were you were an innocent bystander. They asked you to join in, and you, and you joined. How, how did that actually happen? Did you get a phone call from Elton himself? How, what was the, the actual connection?
1: This is a great story. I, uh, I was told... 1974 because I'd been working with Stephen Stills that I was going to get the gig with Crosby Stills, Nash and Young when they reunited for the very first rock and roll stadium tours, nobody had done this and uh, Stephen says you got the gig man, you just gotta learn wooden ships and then Crosby will be convinced and I'd already been working with Stephen so I was told I had the gig I even went as far as rehearsing with Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young at Neil's Ranch, uh, uh, south of San Francisco. Mm. I was there rehearsing, and little did I know, I uh, got off the stage after rehearsal. Stephen said, "Got some bad news. Uh, Graham and David think you're too young." Okay. What? Well, and <laughs> you're not gonna you're not gonna get the gig. And I went, "Well, wait a second you got to be kidding me i'm too young and uh i went to their cabin and said what what, what do you mean i'm too young and they kind of looked at me weird next thing i know there's a limo there steven says go and work with my my wife erinique Sanson, uh help her put together her american record and as i was leaving the limo i saw neil on his horse he had a paint horse he had those uh Glass sort of reflector sunglasses, and he kind of waved at me, and I went, "Oh God!" Because Neil seemed to be my friend. seemed to, All the blame was was Graham and David. And years later, years later, I opened up a Neil Young the book called Shaky, and uh, it wasn't the book. I was uh, coming from Europe, and People Magazine. I saw Neil Young has a book, and I opened it to the exact page where it said. Well, Stephen Stills wanted Kenny Passarelli to play bass. That was his his guy, but I wanted my guy. I found out that day, years later, that it was Neil Young's move. Right. And uh, I, uh, um, I,
0: I'll, I'll never forget that. And mm. so I was very
1: disappointed. Mm. I came back to Los Angeles, and I worked on uh, on uh, Veronique Sanson's record, who. It was a big record, actually. She did a Kiki D song. Mm. And uh, I uh, i was very disappointed. I was hurt and I was sad. And I went off and did another. I moved to Hawaii for a while. And then I got a call from Joe Vitale. And so I was on the road with Joe Vitale in Boston when I got the call. And it was from uh, Joe Walsh. Joe, call, Joe Joe Walsh called me. And here's a guy. I didn't say this before, but I quit Walsh. well joe walsh broke up barnstorm Mm -hmm. and he said kenny i'm moving to los angeles i want to want you to come with me and i had been offered to work with steven stills who was very much my uh, my new mentor and i idolized Mm -hmm. steven and so i did not go to la with joe and irving azoff and I had to tell these guys I'm not coming. I want to stay in the mountains of Colorado at Caribou and work with Stephen. And I thought, well, I burned that bridge. Well, not so. So uh, uh, Joe Walsh called me, found me at a hotel in Boston, and says, listen, I was with Elton John in Las Vegas. He's looking for a bass player, and he wants to hire you. I recommended you, and so did David Foster. And mm-hmm. he's," I said, Really, and he said, "Yeah, management's going to call you." So Connie Pappas called me and said, "Here's the deal. Are you interested?" But we have to—you have to be available to uh, starting in May because the concert's going to be in June, and then recording in August, a new record. And uh, I said, "Okay, but can you have Elton call me?" I at least <laughs> had the balls to say that, and and Elton did. He picked Ooh. up the phone and he called. Me he called me and he said "Kenny I want you to" and I said "you got it" so that that's how it happened
0: so how do you remember that phone call i mean usually things like this people have an indelible memory of i mean i guess it was a short call but a but a very persuasive one by elton was it
1: here's the best part of it he said he was he said listen, you've been highly recommended joseph and I've listened to all your work and I love it and um, I want you to you know this is what can and he was very shy and very it wasn't demanding at all he was and he said I said of course I'll, I'll be I'll be there and he said, this is what you got to do so I met him on a I met him and I flew from Boston to New York. Uh, it was several weeks later. I had to finish up some touring. We set a time date and I flew with Elton John first class TWA. We met at the, at the, um, we met in New York and I sat in front of him. He said two words to me. I think before we got on the plane, he said, do you want to buy some magazines? And he gave me a hundred dollar bill and I bought some, and here I am in cowboy boots, And he's wearing, you know, he was the Cartier kid at the time. And he said he was with his assistant and Michael Hewitson. And I sat in front of him. We flew into Paris. Next thing I know, I'm in a Corniche and Elton John is playing 10 CC. I'm not alone. Continually. He was just over and over playing it. And we flew uh, from New York to Paris got into a cornish convertible and drove to the honky chateau to the chateau uh, outside of paris and we get there and elton and i thought i was going there for an audition mm. and um elton uh, uh, elton says listen kenny i'm uh, i'm jet lagged i'm going to go to bed and uh Dave, he said go to go meet the band so i go over to Davey. he was the first one and he said kenny I said, "Well, when do I audition?" He says, "You're not auditioning. You know, You got the gig, and there's no audition." So that that's how it happened. And I met Ray Cooper, and I met Dave. Uh, we all were uh, there at the uh, at uh, the chateau, and uh, we were there actually to work on a Davey Johnston solo record to kind of put this band together. And unfortunately, there was some wiring. Problems, so we ended up just doing a playback of uh, of uh, Captain Fantastic uh, there at the the chateau, and then uh, we jammed a little bit. But it was we didn't work again until May, and uh, uh, and that was in in uh, Amsterdam. We we stayed a month at the at the Hilton where John and Yoko stayed when they did their. They stayed in bed for whatever mm-hmm. their peace thing, mm-hmm. and we stayed in the exact hotel. And we rehearsed. We rehearsed for a couple of weeks there, and then we uh, flew to London, and and did our um, uh, did our two uh, d- did our afternoon. Uh, I forget exactly what it was called at that point. The concert at Wembley Stadium, and that was, and we did the entire uh, uh, Captain Fantastic from beginning to end. And I looked out at the crowd. It had been only released a week before, hmm. but that was Elton's choice. And the Beach Boys basically blew us off the stage because all they did was play greatest hits. But hmm. it was it was incredible. Paul McCartney was there, one of my idols, and, and uh, it was it was quite the event. And uh, that's how it started for me. It was a tele- two telephone calls, one from management and one from Elton John. Next thing I know, I headed on a plane, met Elton flew to Paris went to the chateau met the band and the next then the next step was was uh uh going actually I went to stay in Davy's apartment in uh in London and then prepared to, to do our show at Wembley Stadium or I should say then flew to uh uh then and no I take this back I flew back to I met Davy. uh he'd rented a place in the, um in the countryside of outside of paris and we uh they i guess a little south and we uh that's where he taught me we we, we uh um, we woodshedded the tunes and then then i drove up with his roadie all the way to amsterdam Davey had a fly back and uh we started a rehearsal uh, learning the set for the Webley Stadium show. Wow! So that's that's the true story. That's exactly what happened, and I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget the phone calls, and I'll never forget the kindness, and how Elton was was so kind and so professional. Incredibly professional.
0: Well, fantastic, and it's it's heartwarming to hear uh, accounts like this, and particularly uh, so vividly, so many years on. Um, I mean, it's nearly half a century ago, my friend um it's 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 incredible um i mean what you said there earlier on i just want to rewind to one thing you said about boarding the plane and elton saying here's here's a hundred dollar bill get yourself some magazines i mean i mean you know even today you can buy a lot of magazines for a hundred dollars what was he thinking i mean that seems like a uh, did did he just not have the split change i mean you know you could have got a lot you could have bought a publishing house probably for that money back in 1975
1: of course he did Change. He was Elton John when we, you know, he just he just pulled a wad of money out out of his Cartier, um, a briefcase and just said here and go buy some magazines. And then when we got off, I never saw so much luggage. There was a truck there waiting for his his luggage. I mean. I'd been around the block okay I'd been in Learjets, jets and I'd just done stuff with Steven but never had I witnessed an international being with an international star and here that's that's who he was he was number 1 and number 1 100 dollar bill is you know I guess that's just you know that's you know uh, that's the change he had was 100 dollar bills.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So pocket pocket money denominated in 100 dollar bills. Love it. Okay, super. So um and then as you say uh it was it, it was from your point of view as an artist it was uh, very reassuring to know that he wasn't a control freak. You're saying he was very polite and he he didn't criticize you. He he basically let you do your own creative thing. It sounds to me very much from that that he had made up his mind that he wanted a new sound to be to to be coming out from him, and that might have been the reason to to why why there was a change of of the band members. I mean, I did. Do, do you ever find out what the real reason was?
1: What you said is exactly true. Uh, it, was, it it was he wanted to go a different direction. Mm. Okay, and and it wasn't that. I think he he wanted an American bass player. I yep. mean, and the way Roger played. Uh, I'd heard this from from many from other people that Roger was a unique Brit drummer. Mm. The, the British had a different, you know, the, there was a certain sort of feel that Brits had, but Roger was more R and B American. He listened to a lot of R and B, and a lot he was influenced by a different style of drumming. Mm. So Elton and his brilliance, after hearing the stuff that I did. And being a huge fan of Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Stephen, uh, Bernie, and Elton both told me that they were they saw CSN play uh, CSNY play in London, and it was a big deal for them as songwriters. So uh, I think he uh, th- the thing that uh, that I'll always remember was I never felt like an employee in the sense of. Elton looked up to me because of the people I'd worked with and uh, uh, especially Stephen Stills I think and he felt, uh, Stephen Stills and Walsh, mm. and uh, he, he felt that my style of playing he respected that and that's why he knew exactly what he wanted when we,
0: when we got together. That's absolutely so incredible. Uh, I, so I, I really feel
1: that was it because like I said there was never I mean uh, he just let me do whatever I, he knew I wasn't going to overstep any boundaries. Okay. He knew, he knew how I was going to play and that I was going to be, uh, respectful to his compositions. And he also, he also knew that I would, uh, I, I you know, I, I was available to make any changes that were needed. There was never, and, and it was a kind of an invisible sort of communication that, uh, That happened. And um, I'll always, when I listen to the records I played on with Elton, I'll always have such great memories of how they were cut because I was right there on his, uh, we were tied to the hip there.
0: Mm. And
1: uh, sorry seems to be the hardest word, is only uh, on Blue Moves' record, there's two. Uh, I think where's the Sharraz that's just the two of us playing together then they added a uh, choir mm. and then on sorry seems to be the hardest word. it's just Roger and, and myself and Elton and same with Idol that's just the three of us so we were pretty tight and there was there wasn't any sort of stink eye or you know somebody looking up at you going what's that it was, it was magic. Sorry seems to be the hardest word is magic track.
0: It really is. That's just the three of us. And I'm so proud you were on it. I mean, that's just fantastic. We're going to take a little intermission. Stay right there, Kenny. OK, that's the rocket sound. So it's just to remind people that you're listening to Saturday Night's Alright for podcasting with me, George Matlock. Special guest today, Kenny Passarelli. From the mid-70s, he was uh, loomed large there with Elton John. We've just been hi- uh, talking to him about those uh, special years, um, how he played at Dodger Stadium. I mean, what a great uh, coincidence since Elton's just come off stage there this very week. And and on top of that, uh, Rock of the Westies, and also the Blue Moose album, you've just been hearing there, um, uh, one of the great centrepiece uh, songs of all time there. Sorry seems to be the hardest word. Kenny Passarelli was the bass guitarist, of course, on that. But I want to just bring in here, if I may, um, uh, to you, Kenny, um, we, we, all, we all discuss everything to do with Elton John's world. So it's not just Elton John, obviously. And uh, so I wanted to ask you what other interactions you've had. I know, for example, that you've worked on an album for none other than the lyricist, Bernie Torpin. Do you want to tell us about that?
1: Yeah, I I worked on um, actually Bernie and I wrote a song. I, the, the interesting part was that Bernie and I really super connected. Uh, when I uh, came to Paris and I asked about Bernie, I said, "Well, what's uh, does is Bernie here too? Does you know? Because I didn't really know these mm. guys. Mm. Uh, I, I didn't know the personal side. I didn't, and, you know, I, I wasn't aware of uh, of." of, uh, i met John Reed, obviously. And, uh, I said, where's Bernie? And he said, well, Bernie's married to an American gal and he kind of shows up. Uh, he sends, you know, at this point, Bernie and Elton were writing tunes where Bernie would send the lyrics and they had such a magical, and I'm sorry to use that word magical, but this was magic. Cause I saw it mm. that Elton could just look at those words and I sat with him for Rock of the West. He's up a caribou. I turned the pages and I saw him like he'd make a little note there, but they had something and they still do have a uh, special communication. And so when I met Bernie, uh, he came to the, uh, I think he came to some, uh, some uh, he came to the rehearsals in Amsterdam and we were like two brothers. I mean, it's like we, we met and I was told by the band, he was very shy and he, kind of stayed away from everybody. He was in and out. And we we hung out a bunch and then later uh we wrote a, a couple songs together and uh one I released on RSO Records called Never Gonna Break Your Heart, which Bernie wrote the lyrics. Um and um so uh I was asked when he was going to so we when we were hanging out together he, you know, always wanted to sing. So we started. I, you know, at that point, he we we were working on material, and then then he said he wanted to uh, cut a record. So we we cut one record that was never released.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: and I uh, was done up in Canada. So then he went off. At a certain point later, uh, this was after seventy six. And uh, got a hold of me about playing bass on his, um, I think, the tag, the I, I can't quite remember the title of it, but his, first, his solo album. And, and so I was lucky enough to play on that.
0: Right. Now, of course, that's an interesting time as well, because 76, 77, of course, is when there was the kind of unofficial divorce between uh, Elton and, and Bernie. Up until that point, of course, Bernie was his one and only lyricist. But then Elton again, having done what, what he's done, had done with the band, he he kind of did the same thing with his uh, his writing partnership. He he looked for new for new talent. And so of course he 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 started working with Gary Osborne, and that proved to be a very fruitful Absolutely. five years. Yeah. And then Bernie comes back on stage at kind of 80, 82, 83. So um so I guess th- this was the time when that this was all happening, that they they'd broken up the writing partnership in effect. Um they kind of wanted to do their own things, and and Bernie was writing his own album. And and that's when when you you worked with with Bernie. So um, you mentioned a song there, uh, nothing's gonna break your heart, right? Uh, can you remind me of the, what the track was called again?
1: Uh, which uh, don't go breaking my
0: heart? No, or? no, no, no. The, the track that you did with with with, with oh, oh. Bernie. I'm
1: sorry. Uh, I after we finished uh, seven days at Madison Square Gardens, a man came up to me. <laughs> As soon as I mention your name, it's you know his name. You're going to know who I'm talking about okay. here. He, uh, it was either the second or the the second to the last night. Elton John brought everybody into the dressing room and said, and and basically started to to weep. He was crying. He said, "I'm done. I've got to take some time off." And mm. here is this is this is uh, I don't think there's any 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 bosses who who would be able to. to to maybe pull only Elton John would do this and he was Roger Pope never really got over the band breaking up at that point and he said I have to do it I have to take take time off Uh, he had not stopped working since 1969 uh, two albums a year he had to do for Dick James music and he, he finally had his own record company and he needed some time off and he also needed to tell the world of his sexuality in which was still a very, very, very difficult time. Mm. And he, uh, he was, he and John had broken up as, as partners and Bernie and Maxine had broken up. Everything ended at the same time. Mm. And, uh, so this gentleman comes to the concert, he comes up to me. His name was Robert Stigwood. Mm. And he said, Kenny, what are you doing after this? And I said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and he said, I think, uh, I uh, can you, do you have any material? I said, I have a couple songs. One I wrote with Bernie Topham is called, I'm Never Gonna Break Your Heart. Hmm. And I, I'll never forget this. He said, I want you to come over to my apartment. I've got a piano there. Play it for me. I played him the song. I got a record deal. He says, I'm going to make you a movie star. I'm going to make, a, and you're going to be a recording artist. And Long story short, didn't make the movie star part, but I was. Um, he says, "I've got, uh, I've got this guy named uh, uh, from Cotter's back named John Travolta. I'm doing a movie called uh, Saturday Night Fever, and I want you to be in the movie. You're going to be one of the guys in the movie, and and I mean, I, I just went okay. And by the way, then you're going to have a recording contract too because I love this song that you've got. So. Uh, he, to make a long story short, I didn't get the part, I didn't get to be in the movie because the director he had hired by the name of John Avelson had just won an Oscar for Rocky. I was working with John. I'd never acted before in my life. And I did a screen test with John Travolta and, um, Robert called me right after Rocky and won an Oscar and said, I've got some bad news. I said, what? He said, I fired John Abelson. I said, what do you mean?
0: Wow. And he, he says, well, he, he he doesn't want to use the Bee Gees for Saturday Night Fever. <laughs> oh my, oh said, my. Oh, okay. I said, okay, he wanted
1: to use the guy, Bill Conti, who did mm-hmm. Get Dean Strong Now from, from the Rocky film. That's right. So Stigwood fired, Stigwood fired him, and he said, what do you think? And I said, I said, Robert. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I, he was my only connection with an acting world. I did a screen test. I worked with him. He was helping me with my Brooklyn accent. And I said, I'd rather do. I I think I want to do a, 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 an album instead. Well, did, little did I know <laughs> that that uh, that it was going to be one of the biggest uh, uh, movies and and the PGs. Right. I mean, I met Barry i met um, Andy Gibb. I was around uh, all those guys for a bit, but I chose to do something else. And uh, I walked away from it all uh, when I got the call to work with Daryl Hall and John Oates.
0: Well, we're delighted. Bob. I was just going to say, we're What's delighted that, that the BGS managed to survive that purge. And of course they, 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 they still, sort you know, um, still were still involved, weren't they?
1: Oh, it was unbelievable. They sold 24 million records yeah. and, uh, and it was, uh, but Robert Stigwood, you know, he gave me so much hope in my career as a songwriter and as a singer. And, uh, I'll never forget, uh, Robert Stigwood. He was, a, he was, a he was an incredible visionary. And mm. so that was my little touch with the movie business. And and I went back to playing music and then I went back on the road playing bass with hollow notes and I brought Caleb and Roger into the band, right. uh, uh, and and uh, so we worked together two years. We did uh, a live album called Live Time, which is incredible. And then we did On the Red Ledge, that David Foster's first production, mm. and with Hall. And that and that's Roger and Caleb. And um, it was it was a great great time. It was a great time. And then Roger and Caleb and I did Daryl Hall's solo record because Daryl was talking to me about breaking up the duo and wanted. Said, listen, I want you to to come and get Caleb and Roger to come with me. We did the album Sacred Songs, and uh, Robert Fripp produced. And uh, RCA said did not didn't even want to release the record because he did not. They did not want Hollow Notes. That was their their their, their meat, mm-hmm. potatoes. And so that, that that's when that's when um, the Hollow Notes, uh, the uh, Roger and Caleb. Went off to L.A., I went off to, to work with Dan Fogelberg.
0: Wow, okay. So let's um, bring it gradually to a close, but just for people who, who've persevered and listened to this uh, fabulous uh, conversation, I've really enjoyed it, by the way. Uh, we had a few technical Thank problems, you. but we've persevered, and I'm pleased that we found a workaround. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, if you've been with us th- through the last uh, sort of 45 minutes or so, I hope you felt blessed, as 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 I do, to be able to speak to Kenny Passarelli from the Elton John band the mid 70s what you said earlier there uh, if i may ask Kenny about uh, Roger and, and Caleb go, joining joining you with Hall of Notes. i mean what to me what's wonderful is how real friendships begin and how people you know they 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 m- work with so many artists and then they they rejoin somewhere down the track they, they they're on the same album they're in the same band it's a real musical community isn't it it's it's great that 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 sort of thing happens
1: you know what the timing of what you're saying here I felt just being in Nashville with uh I was with Billy Gibbons of ZZ Top I was with Vince Gill of the Eagles I was in the same dressing room with George Massenberg and Rodney Crowell and and James William Gershow, my big brother and um it was the same feeling. This community of musicians. Mm. This was the musicians' hall of fame, and that's what I had with Roger and Caleb. We were a family, and to this day, God bless. I'm sorry, Roger, but Roger and I communicated a bunch over the phone prior to his his death, and Caleb Quay came out here and filmed me um, with uh, with his uh, this uh, documentary of. Louder Than Music, that's coming out, that Caleb did. So Caleb and I speak to each other all the time. This is fantastic. So yes, this this musical connection that we had, the music that we that, that's still being played on the radio, and uh, the friendships that still are here. I couldn't ask for more, George.
0: And that's wonderful that, you know, through, through your career and you continue now, you know, you're still a young man, of course, but, you know, the great thing is that there you are... <laughs> there you there you are still actively involved um i mean this is just incredible i mean what years ago you know i i had the pleasure of interviewing uh, jean jacques perry the the french composer who uh, wrote mu- wow. music that you know, he, he, those kind of uh, use the Moog as it's properly pronounced right, the Moog as it's written, the Moog that's right, you know, he was the king of Moog and and of course he wrote a piece of music which Euro Disney continued to use uh, to this very day which is the the night uh, parade and, and and you know, he, he's had uh, hits that have been re-released in the year 2000 and it became a number one hit all over again, I think it was called Evo or, or something like Evo Um. It's just incredible, you know that guy. To he was he was close to his nineties. He was still traveling between London and Paris and recording on a regular basis. When I spoke to him, I was like, you know, you're not even slowing down. But this is wonderful, and it, and it, and you're you're doing, uh, I, I dare say, uh, much the same in the sense that you too are uh, creatively still expressing yourself. You're 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 recording, as you said. You mentioned a number of names there, including one of the wonderful guys from ZZ Top. Um, but let me ask you this: um, I. I are these recordings, are, are you good? Is there an album that's coming out soon that you want to give us a quick plug?
1: Well, um, let's see if I, if, uh, there's, you know, the last record that I did and I did a performance in, in uh, the United States it was Yusuf Islam's last record, mm-hmm. uh, road singer. I don't know if you heard that record. So, um, it, it was, um, uh, I, I did the Jay Leno show with, with Yusuf and, I came to London and did some rehearsals with, with Yusuf. and, and, and the, uh, I mean, he talk about a feather in my cap. for Tillerman. I mean, Wild mm. World. I mean, t- to work with such an outstanding songwriter and singer, who when he picked up the guitar and, and started singing, it was like 1971 again. Wow. I, I just couldn't believe it. So I worked with, um, uh, in terms of... Other, other, uh, I'm working on, uh, on several projects right now. Uh, I have, I have a co-writer, uh, uh, that I've worked with named Don Miggs and my gal, the woman I, I live with is a lyricist and there's stuff coming out, uh, at some point, but, uh, but, uh, I, I can't really say, uh, what, what's, what's next other than, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I was, I was with everybody from Roy Stevens, who's 84, like the Frenchman, who's still out there doing it in Nashville, and Billy Gibbons. ZZ Top is starting to. Uh, uh, the, uh, the they he lost his bass player uh, oh. uh, Dusty Hill, and and he just actually this was just two days ago we, we just really super connected. And he said, Hey man, your name's come up a bunch. And what do you let, give me your information. That's, you know, and Billy's an unstoppable force. I mean, he's incredible. He's one of the nicest human beings you'd ever meet. And he wants to continue to work. So what I, what I feel um, that I'm going to do uh, is continue to work. I worked with Joe Walsh last year in May with Joe Vitelli, the original barnstorm in Joshua Tree, we cut some tracks. So there's more things down, and I think 2023 is going to. Uh, I think it's going to be a very a very productive year. With um uh you know got Caleb with his movie coming out, mm. his documentary, and uh, I I'm just available to do and continue to work. I'm I'm uh, I feel that I'm at uh, uh i've really took command over my keyboard skills which has helped me to write become more of a writer mm. and uh, my my gal is this incredible lyricist and we've done a couple shows in new york already uh i'm kind of heading towards a broadway show i have uh, which is it's semi-autobiographical but it's it's more like two people meeting at an old age and one beat is the lyricist, the next lawyer and the other is the next pop pop musician. And they, they come together and start writing songs. And we have this whole narrative that runs through that. So I'm a busy guy and I continue to be, and I, I, I really miss my friend, Dan Fogelberg uh, who passed away, but uh, mm-hmm. we did, a, we did a lot of music together. I'm still good friends with Daryl and John. So there are things in the future and uh, I'm, I, I'm not stopping. There's no retirement. Excellent. Uh, it's it, it, so that's that that really closes it down. I think I, I think <laughs> I've, I've really basically said to you, George, that the past was incredible, but the future is bright.
0: That's wonderful, and I, I love that sense of positivity from you. You mentioned your girlfriend is is a lyricist. I, I think we need to, we need to th- uh, drop a name in here because uh, she's famous. Come on, let's have a name.
1: Her name is Amy Loper, and nobody knows about her, but they're going to.
0: Okay, fantastic. <laughs> her
1: name is Amy, Amy Loper, and she was a divorce attorney for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, I discovered that that uh, she she figured out, being a wordsmith, which most solicitors and, and lawyers can be, she figured out she had this hidden talent, and we've, uh, we've planted the seed, and we've written over 50 songs. COVID was good for us. We sat and wrote a lot of material, so you'll be hearing about her, I
0: guarantee you. Excellent. So you're going to be releasing some of this material. I'm really looking forward to that. Excellent, excellent. Well, keep us keep us in, yes. the, in, in the picture. Now, final question I need to ask you is, do you have like a, a website or a Facebook account or somewhere where people can follow you if people want to n- know more me. about your latest?
1: Yeah, Facebook and Instagram. Look me up, and uh, I've got my, my 23-year-old daughter who's living in New York, uh really manages me because as you notice just getting um uh to 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 be able to communicate with you i'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to the technology part so yes please look up become my friend on facebook and instagram and you can follow what i'm doing okay there's tons of photographs there's a lot of stuff going on and then at some point george i'll send you i didn't have it together enough to send you some material but i'll send i'll send you some material so so you can see especially as a keyboardist and stuff i think you'll 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 see the evolution of where kenny passarelli is now
0: well kenny i'll tell you one thing you've just lined yourself up here my friend for a for a a sequel for another (laughs) <laughs> another Saturday night's all right for podcasting interview maybe oh, we can man. we can talk thank about you. the songs we can sort of break them down make it granular uh and you can talk about the storyline behind them and what the inspiration was I, I think you know you've already uh, invited yourself onto the next show here
1: <laughs> you're awesome thank you George I, I I appreciate and I'm honored to be included in your show it's no. a big deal for me and and the, and being involved in to do with Elton John. I'm the first to raise my hand. I've done lots of interviews about him and uh, I know he's it's gotten back to him and there's only only great things to say about my experience with him. He's a lovely man and I'm so happy he's happy. That's important to me
0: fantastic and I'm sure he will really appreciate your sentiments so thank you very much for sharing that with us today just uh, got to ask you this uh, about final uh, finally about the the film that came out in 2019 the the biography of Elton John better known as rocket man have you seen the movie and if so what is your view is is it um, does, does it capture your years in a fair way
1: well you know I when they showed the the Dodger Stadium part, I really wasn't in a red jumpsuit. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and, but, but, but you know, the most important part to me, because a lot of people have asked me, said you were there through this time. You were there. Uh, I stayed at Elton's house the night, uh, before his apparent suicide. And I, uh, I didn't see it coming. Mm. I knew he was exhausted. Uh, but, um, uh, I think that the movie represents what he really wanted to say. And I, I really can't uh, say anything more than that. And and if that's what he wanted to say, that's the way he looked at what was going on. That's the, that I'm going to have to say that um, uh, I have no comment on that, oh. uh, but I was there for, for a lot of that. And I do want to say this, that, that I know that, that uh, whatever, um, Uh, that John Reed and Elton John were titans and they as a team really, really uh, John worked very hard to make, make it happen for, for Elton. And they had something very, very special, but the most important thing is Elton is very, very special as is Bernie and his music is, is, uh, I mean, just, he is the, the, what can I say? There's nothing to be, he's number one in,
0: my eyes he's number one yeah yeah absolutely fantastic so um for the record you weren't wearing a red uh, uh jumpsuit as was suggested by the movie what were you listen, wearing
1: listen i was wearing a white linen georgia Armani. Uh, a suit on, on, on Dodger Stadium.
0: Super so cool. I, it, it, that is smart. That is so smart. <laughs> Take a look at the yeah, no, absolutely. We'll, we'll look out for you. We'll look out for you in the pictures. Uh, Kenny Passarelli, say right there, we're just closing out the show now, but I've got to say, this has been okay. absolutely awesome. Thank you so very much.